The OneOuter.com podcast is now proudly sponsored by William Hill Poker. We are delighted to announce that there will now be a monthly tournament for the next six months. This tournament is exclusive to OneOuter.com listeners who sign up for a William Hill account using promotional code OneOuter when setting up their account. You can find a link to download William Hill Poker by clicking on the advert on OneOuter.com or through one of the links in the William Hill Poker section. You must use OneOuter as the promotional code to enter the tournament. The first tournament will be Sunday the 23rd of June 2013 at 7pm UK time. The buy-in is only $5 to keep it available to all bankrolls and listeners. There will be added prizes including OneOuter.com t-shirts and some excellent poker books. Of course I will be playing the tournament and there will be a prize for the player who knocks me out of the tournament. As well as prizes in the money in the prize pool, points will be awarded depending on where you finish in the tournament. The best player after the six monthly tournament has finished will be crowned the OneOuter.com tournament champion and receive a very special grand prize. Further details of the tournament dates and prizes can be found on OneOuter.com under the William Hill Poker section. I really hope you can help support the podcast by playing in all or at least one of these tournaments. I look forward to seeing some of you at the tables and hopefully taking your chips from you. So sign up for a William Hill Poker account today and use OneOuter as your promotional code. And the password for the tournaments is Ginger. G-I-N-G-E-R. When inside the William Hill Poker client, just click on Tournaments and then the magnifying glass icon to search for Tournament. Enter OneOuter and you will find the OneOuter monthly tournaments there. Thanks for listening. It's a great pleasure for OneOuter.com today to speak with Chris Moneymaker. I'm sure everybody in poker knows uh, Chris's name by now. He's been credited as the guy that sort of started this latest boom, winning the main event in 2003. How are you today, Chris? Doing fantastic. Just uh, hanging at the house and watching my son. Yeah, is this the, the new baby, yeah? Yeah, this is the new baby, four months old, so uh, definitely uh, keeps me on my toes. What's his name? Uh, Will. Will, well, okay. So not named after any poker players or anything? Or <laughs> named, after <laughs> anything. My father, named after my father-in-law. Named after your father-in-law, okay. Um, yeah, I met Chris in the Edinburgh UKIPT, the Poker Stars uh, UKIPT, and Chris was over there, you know, representing poker stars and stuff, and... I gave him my card and he kindly agreed, you know, to do this interview. Um, so since I'm from Scotland, uh, what was your sort of thoughts on Scotland and you know the Edinburgh sort of scene? Well, the weather wasn't exactly the best. I can tell you that much. Um, yeah. The the tournament area was uh, different. It was probably the most unique setting I've ever been to. Um, the one thing that I did enjoy was the people. The people there were just amazingly nice. It was amazing um, how many offers I had to. You know, go out and grab a drink or, you know, just to do something. I was always busy. Um, everybody was overly friendly. Um, mm-hmm. But it was like, I don't know, 14 degrees and raining or something. It was miserable weather. Well, that, that's, a, that's a great day in Scotland. You got the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was held in the Corn Exchange. And if, if anyone was at that event or has, has played there before, um, it's a music venue in one of these places. And it is strange, you know, because it's not a casino. And Poker Stars, uh, the Scotland leg of the UKIPT is going to be held in the, the Scotsman Hotel, I think it is, in Edinburgh. 
um, next January. So they, they've changed locations. Um, there were certain good points about the location, but yeah, some people didn't seem to like some aspects of it. It wasn't a bad location. It was just different. You know, you have never been into a poker tournament um, that was like that. It was just a different type setting. You know, you, it wasn't like walking into a casino or, um, you know, just walking into a convention hall and just a bunch of poker tables set up. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's what I usually do, and I, you know, I get people. I sort of go way back, and obviously, um, it's great looking at your hending mob. You know, your first entry. It must be the greatest first entry ever. It's like. Um, first in the 10k world championships main event for two and a half million so uh, just take us back to sort of around about that time and before that have you, uh, were you always into poker and you know it's documented that you qualified through st poker stars on a satellite and stuff but sort of take us to before the main event and what what your sort of take on poker was well i mean i went to the casinos to play blackjack and sports betting back in the day i like betting i like being in the atmosphere I really thought it was um, enjoyable to be in that environment. Um, the problem is I left broke every single time that I went. So um, I started playing poker um, basically to go down there and be able to drink and have fun for the entire day without losing my whole bankroll. Because back then they didn't have no limit. It was all just limit. And you can play a pretty small limit game and you know never really hurt yourself. Um, so that's why I started playing poker. And uh, while I was down there on one of my trips, one of the guys sitting at my table told me about Poker Stars. And uh, it was about a four-hour drive to get to the casino. Um, mm -hmm. So instead of driving to the casino, I decided I'd download Poker Stars and started playing on there. Immediately loved it and uh, been doing it ever since. Um, you know, Poker Stars was a lot different back then. You know, they didn't have the Sunday Million and the Sunday, all, you know, all these different Sunday terms that. I think they had the Sunday 200K, and there's like 200 people in it for $200. Um, wow. The biggest game, I think, was a 5-10 no limit game. Mm -hmm. I played a 10-20 limit game is what my normal game was. Um, it was just, you know, the, and the tournaments were very limited. The sit-and-goes were very limited. It was, uh, it was much different back then, and, uh, you know, it's weird to see how far it's come. Yeah, I mean, I myself only started playing in – 2007 so you know it's you know around about that time four or five years so it, for me to imagine poker stars with you know like on a sunday you know 200k tournament with 200 people in it so that's it seems quite insane it just shows you you know how far it has sort of come so when you were playing on poker stars you know were you just sort of dabbling around in various tournaments and the cash games like you say and then the, the satellites was that a new thing that came you know just that year for qualifying for the main event well, you know, back then they didn't really list out. I, I played a lot of satellites and I played a lot of limit poker. Um, mm -hmm. But back then they didn't like. We go on poker stars today. It's very easy to see what's a satellite, what's a cash sit and go. Um, it's very well labeled. Back then it was sort of all just thrown together, and you really didn't know what you were registering for until you opened up the lobby and looked. Well, mm -hmm. I accidentally registered for the satellite to the WSOP. My mistake. There were uh, 17 of 18 people sitting at a table for two-table sit-and-go. I assumed it was a cash table, so I just quickly logged on and grabbed the last seat because then, you know, sit-and-goes back then didn't go off that often. I mean, it was hard to get an 18-person sit-and-go going. So I yeah. just quickly logged in, and right after I logged in, I saw it was a, a, a satellite for the uh, $615 tournament the next weekend, which would eventually get you to the WSOP. Okay. Um, so that was purely an accident that you 
logged into that 18-man sitting goal, and then I assume you won that one, which got you into the 6-15 game. You assume correctly, and that that's what I did. <laughs> and then... And then the 615, is, was that one of these with like a few seats available or was it? They gave away three seats and then fourth place was $8,000. And my ultimate goal was to win the $8,000. I had really no envisions or desire to go play the World Series. Right. But you did. And sort of the rest the rest is history. And that, that accidental registration you know, sort of worked out well. So... You say, you know, your target was fourth for, you know, 8K, you know, a lot of money, you know, even by today, you know, for anyone, um, especially that, you know, at the time you weren't a professional poker player or anything. So once you won that seat, what was sort of going through your head? Um, was it to try and how can I get money for this or, OK, this is what it is. I've registered. I'm going to go and play this and try and, you know, cash in the event. No, I never thought I was going to cash. I was just trying to make it through the first day. You know, I tried to sell my seat, which I couldn't do. And so I ended up selling pieces of myself. I sold a percentage to my dad and a percentage to another friend and, uh, you know, made like $4,000 to go out to Vegas with and try to, I'd never played live no limit poker before. I'd played limit before down the casino, but I'd never played live no limit. Um, I really felt like I was going to walk into a shark tank and, you know, just be destroyed. And I had no expectation. I mean, I would, I would have been happy just to make it through the first day. Yeah. So um, how, how did the first day sort of go for you? I mean, obviously, it's a marathon tournament and there's lots of situations and stuff, but what was your sort of feelings now looking back on, on the first day? You know, once you make make it to the end of day one and you're through to day two, were, were you, you know, stacked at that point? Were you thinking, you know, I've got to run at this and maybe still a chance to cash? Or were you still very much sort of just happy to be there and just see see how far you could go? Well, I was definitely happy just to be there, but we started with 10,000 in chips, and at the end of the day, I was up to 60. <clears throat> and uh, my, I had a game plan going in. I followed the game plan on day one, and it worked. And uh, poker back then was actually really easy. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of – it was more or less ABC poker for the most part. If people had something, they bet. If they didn't, they checked. If they had a monster, they check-raised you. Um, mm-hmm. And that that was pretty much poker back in 2003. There wasn't a whole lot of three betting without hands. There wasn't a whole lot of, there was never four betting light or anything like that. So mm-hmm. my simple plan was to play super tight, only play hands that can make the moral nuts. If I had a flush draw, it had to be the nut flush draw. If I had, you know, or make sets, that was my pretty much my strategy. And then if I did play a hand, I want to make sure I had good position on the table. And if they checked to me, I bet. And if they bet and I didn't connect, I folded. Sounds mm-hmm. simple. That's what I did. Yeah. And, uh, I, so and it, and it obviously worked. So on the first day when you sat down, obviously the field was you know smaller compared to you know the the monstrous now, um. But I think it was still relatively large in 2003. You might correct me, but was it was it a couple of thousand? No, was it less than a thousand? Some like 900 runners or something. It was 839. 839. Okay. So on your first day, was there any you know big names? Because back then it wasn't filled with you know, the masses of relatively, you know, unknown players, etc. Was there any big names on your table the first day? Yeah, I mean, I didn't know who he was. I mean, I had to go look on the board just to see who was on my table on the wall because someone kept saying, nice hand champ. Dan Harrington was uh, three to my right on the first day. Oh, <laughs> so that, that's a big name. Uh, he had some record, especially, you know, out of them, the, 
the final tables and stuff. You know, a hero with his books and stuff. Yeah, well, he actually went to the final table that year with me. I mean, we went, we started on the same table and we made it all the way to the final table together. Yeah. So one of the um, once you start going through the tournament and something like that, I mean, it's difficult for people that have have never, um, you know, been in that position to sort of comprehend it. But at, at what point did you sort of start to think? Right, this this is maybe more than just being happy to be here. You know, I, I have a chance of of doing something big here. You know, cashing for a decent amount of money. Maybe not winning it. You know, thinking it. But I started like, I started getting positive and starting to think things were gonna. You know, I have I have some good things going on day three. Um, I walked in and we we're about ready to make the money on that day. And uh, I was on the TV table with Howard Letter and uh, Johnny Chan and. Uh, mm-hmm. I knew it was going to be a tough table, and after I made it through that day alive, um, I had a lot of confidence going forward. I mean, I figured, you know, if I could put out Johnny Chan on the TV table, I could make a good run into this thing because that was, you know, way over the top for me. I never in a million years thought that, first of all, I'd even sit down to play with the guy after watching Rounders, much less yeah, it's Rounders, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, much less knock him out of a tournament. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So one of the hands I remember from the coverage, you know, I watched a couple of years ago um, on YouTube or PokerTube, one of these places, and um, you knocked out Phil Ivey. Obviously, you know, everybody, poker is synonymous with Phil Ivey. And did you knock him out? Because I know he finished 10, so he bubbled the final table, but did you bubble him? Yeah. Yeah, I bubbled him. And honestly, you know, back when he finished 10th, Phil Ivey wasn't Phil Ivey. He was just a Phil Ivey guy. I mean, no one knew who he was. I mean, there's some people knew who he was. I sure, I yeah. certainly didn't. And I would say almost everybody at the final, that, that that table had no idea who he was. Uh, most people in the room had no idea who he was. So it wasn't really that big a deal. We had been playing ten-handed for probably about four hours uh, on the final table bubble. We were everybody was getting tired, and I, and I wasn't going to play a hand. I'd fall. I'd play, I was playing really tight because I just wanted to make the final table. And, yeah. and I picked up an ace queen in position, and when the flop came, queen queen six, um, I knew at that point, you know, I wasn't folding my hand anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think did he, if I, if I remember right, did he not have something like two tens or two nines, and actually, end up making a house, and then you river the house or something? He he actually raised pre-flop with two nines, and Jason Lester called to his left with two tens, and I had ace queen on the button, and the flop right. came queen queen six. It was checked around to me, and uh, I made it 75000 And mm-hmm. he called with his nines, and Jason folded with his tens. And uh, he had about 400000 left. Uh, the nine comes on the turn to make him a full house. He checks. I bet 200000 about half his stack. And uh, he bets mm-hmm. the rest, the other 200000 in, which I you know, can't fold for you know, 200000 yeah. once we have that pot. And uh-huh. uh, I spike the ace on the river, and he goes home in 10th place. Yeah, it's, it's nice. I bet that was a great feeling to make the final table. Uh, you know, I was a, I was such a big chip leader going into ten handed. I knew I was going to make the final table. I almost left just to make sure I did. But yeah. um, it was definitely nice going in with a huge chip weight. I thought once I went with that huge chip weight, I really felt like I was going to win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you were playing the tournament, you know, you get down to ten, uh, ten handed, then you make the final table throughout the tournament was. Was any of these pros? Did you get talking with any of these big names, and did they, you know, offer you any advice at the time, or were you very much sort of just keeping yourself to yourself and just playing your own game? Or? It wasn't until the final table I got any advice. Or I got advice from uh, two people. I got advice from 
Um, Dutch Boyd, he said that I flared my nostrils when I was bluffing, um, okay. which I didn't think was accurate, but okay. Uh, and mm-hmm. then Devilfish on the final table told me, to, told me to stop raising out of position and folding. I did it twice on the final table where I raised with um, suited connectors and got three bet and just open folded uh, mm-hmm. when we were pretty deep stack. And so on a break, he walked up to me and said, uh, something to the effect of, boy, you're playing well, but you can't be raising um, out of position without good hands. Yeah. That's, so what did you think when guys like that were coming up to you and, and offering you advice and stuff like that? Oh, I had no idea who they were. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no one did back then. I mean, uh, I, you know, by the time I got to the final table, I knew who Devilfish was a little bit. Um, Emeril Silvim was walking around trying to make prop bets with people. I mean, you know, I'd vaguely heard of these people, but for the most part, I only knew three people in poker. It was Doyle Brunson, Phil Helmuth, and Johnny Chan. I knew no one else. And yeah, so it was it. It was just some guy walking up to me trying to give me advice, and I'm like, wow, okay, well, I'm still playing. He's not. So fuck you for mm-hmm. what I'm doing. Yeah, it, it seems to me that it was the sort of last year that it was like the old main event that you read about, you know, in these books, like the biggest game in town and, you know, uh, Tony Holden's books and stuff, big deal. When it's like the nostalgia Vegas, you know, it was in Binion's and um, it was a relatively smaller field compared to, you know, six, 7,000, you know, today. And all these characters, like you say, it was it was a real sort of pros get together um, sort of thing. Oh, yeah, it was, the, I, it was the next to last year. Raymer's was the last year for that. It was the last yeah. year at uh, a horseshoe. You know, it was cool because you walk in the horseshoe and all your names are written up on a chalkboard, and with your seat next to them. And you know, it was just a. It was in Benny's bullpen, which there's no other place in the world like it. Uh, I, I really wish you know they would have a tournament back there, a, a big tournament, sort of nostalgia type tournament. Um, yeah. Because it was definitely a unique atmosphere and um you know it was just like good old boys club and the poker is just not that way anymore it's it's definitely changed it's different yeah well i went to vegas myself for the first time two years ago and i went down to fremont street and had you know i wandered around and um i'm only 28 but i like all that sort of nostalgia and poker you know things that you've read about and i walked into binions and it was just quite sad to see i went through the back and took a picture and it's all the poker tables all stacked up in the chairs and the place is empty. And there's the Hall of Fame little picture sort of thing on the wall. And it just seemed, you know, like you say, it would be great if they had a tournament down there and, you know, used the name like, um, you know, 100 play or past main event. When, you know, like the tournament of champion things, or but just people that had won the main event and had it in binions or something. Do you, you know, you sound, sort of sound yourself, something like that would be a good idea. Yeah, I think it would be great. I would love to do something like that. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, you're at the final table and, you know, Dan Harrington's there and, you know, Amir Vahidi was, you know, for guys that like know about poker, another big name. And also um, Sam Farha, obviously, who you ended up playing heads up for the title, one of the the greatest characters, certainly the most entertaining, you know, to watch. Um, When you got heads up with someone like Sam Farha, what was that like? Was there any, you know, talk of a deal or anything? I mean, it's huge money you guys are playing for. I had a two-to-one chip lead, and I offered him actually uh, to split the money and play for the bracelet. And he said no, he deserved a little bit more money, and uh, that obviously didn't sit well with me. That kind of upset me. It was sort of an insult. So Hmm. we didn't make a deal. We just played on. Right. So you played out for the two-and-a-half million first place in the bracelet. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So um, yeah, so that that must have been some feeling. I mean, it's a, it sounds a stupid question, like how does winning two point five million make you feel? But it's one of these cliches that you know that has to be asked. And how long did that take to sink in? The bracelet and the money and everything. It's hard to say really sink in. I mean, I thought it sunk in right away, but you know the ramifications. I thought I just won a poker tournament. I went back to work Monday morning, so <laughs> you know the ramifications wow. of what it meant didn't sink in for a long time. And uh, the money I took and I put, you know, first of all, it was a Harris check uh, or a horseshoe check, which a lot of people said might not be good. So I ran to the bank and prayed it was going to cash. <laughs> and, right. you know, fortunately it did. But, you know, I just put the money away and I didn't look at it for a while because I knew if I looked, you know, I'd heard so many lottery winners go broke and do stupid yeah. things. So I just wanted to make sure that I didn't do anything stupid with the money. I wanted mm -hmm. to be careful and do the right thing. So I put the money away. I went back to work, and that was pretty much my plan. What was what? Were you an accountant or? Was yeah, accountant? I was a controller for a restaurant group. Right, like finance controller and stuff. Yeah. Correct. Right. So you you know you're a pretty astute guy with finances and stuff. Obviously, some people are good with other people's money, but when it comes to their own, you know, they can be a bit reckless. So obviously, there's loads of media attention on you stuff in. You know, you must get it all the time with a name like Moneymaker. I remember when I first got into poker and I was like, that can't be his real name. It must be like, you know, the Devilfish is called the Devilfish or whatever. I was like, the guy can't be called Chris Moneymaker, but I'm sure you've had that, you know, all your life. Um, do you sometimes just sort of think the stars aligned, you know, the misregistration for a satellite, the name Moneymaker, it was just created a poker boom. You know, what, what's your sort of thoughts on that and sort of like fate and destiny and stuff? Well, you know, looking back, obviously, feel that way a little bit. It was sort of I was destined to win. Um, honestly, when I hit the eight on Alberto and I made the the call with pocket threes against Dutch Boyd, I really felt like this was just going to be my tournament to win. I really felt like I had a a really good chance to win it. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously that started the tremendous poker boom, and the next year, you know, everyone piled in with their ten Ks wanting to do a Chris moneymaker. So um, once you've won the main event in your first big tournament, that uh, where do you sort of go from there? Was you know did Poker Stars sign you up you know instantly, um, after winning the main event? Yeah, I signed on with Poker Stars almost instantly. You know, shortly thereafter, um, it seemed pretty logical, and so I, I definitely signed on pretty quickly. Um, I went back to work. Like I said, I didn't play many tournaments after I won. Um, it wasn't until I got second in a WPT the next fall that I actually quit my job and turned pro. And uh, yeah. basically, turning pro in poker means I guess you just quit your job. Um, yeah. There's no you know form you fill out or anything like that. You just that's just your job now. So um, basically, yeah. I just sort of made it my job, and that was it. Uh -huh. Um, I think one of the things you know, I was going through your handed mob and stuff, and um. It's quite, you know, it's good to see a main event champion win, you know, especially yourself, the first guy that sort of started the boom, etc. To sort of go on and have, you know, like you say, you had your second in a WPT, um, you had another deep run in a PLO, I think you bubbled the final table in 2004 in a Portland, Omaha tournament, and then um, obviously plenty of other caches, and then second in the NBC Heads Up, you know, which is one of the uh, toughest tournaments, and you, you lost Eric Seidel. So how much do you think that, in your own mind, was there something like, 
once you turn pro, right, I'm going to go out and try and you know prove myself? Or was it just the case of, I'm turning pro, so I'm just going to go out and play as well as I can and see what happens? I'd already won the World Series of Poker. I didn't really need, feel like I needed to prove myself. Um, yeah. It, but the nationality of people think that you have to prove yourself once you win it. Um, mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I don't really go out to try to prove anything. If I tried to prove anything, I probably would have played a ton. Um, but I play yeah. when I want to play. I play uh, for the – actually, I enjoy the game. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I make money at it. So I uh, do it to make money and do it to have fun. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, it was just meaning, you know, compared to someone like uh, who's like Jerry Yang, you know, maybe he's a bad example because he's not, you know, he does a lot of charity work now and that he doesn't really play a lot of tournament stuff. But, you know, Jamie Gold was uh, a bit like a keen poker player, wanted to learn poker and stuff. He won the main event and he's not really done anything, you know, anything since in tournaments and stuff. It just, it seems that you're a guy, obviously, with the Poker Star sponsorship and stuff. Uh, you seem to still work on your game, like have a hunger for the game, if you know what I mean, and want to like improve as a player. I remember watching uh, you recently on um, coverage of the Poker Stars Caribbean event, and you were playing. Uh, your your game seemed to, you know, you seemed to have evolved, is what I'm sort of trying to say. That in terms of you were speaking about three bet and light, four bet and light, etc. Um, it's not like you've won the main event and just you're going out and playing, you know, poker in two, your 2003 game today. Well, I did get complacent i didn't study for a while and uh from basically middle of 2000 late 2004 to almost even 2008 i had like zero results i mean i was i was missing some here and there i missed the 40k i bubbled it Uh, i mean i bubbled a lot um but at the same time i just wasn't getting the results that i wanted i couldn't figure out why um for the longest time i just discounted it as bad luck you know i had a lot of good run good obviously in the main event the year I won, but so I was sort of, I guess, give, paying back my Sklansky bucks and taking my bad beats and all the, all the stuff um, in the tournaments since then. But mm-hmm. I quickly started to realize that people were playing different now than what they did back when I won. And the game is changing, and I wouldn't keep, I didn't know what people were doing. I mean, I was getting three bet and four bet, and people were floating me more. People were, you know, stealing pots from me. And I just didn't really understand what was going on as much. So I had to go back and actually take time and study and figure out, you know, what am I missing? Yeah, yeah. And um, obviously, you know, the, the poker star sponsorship and stuff and going out and representing them and, you know, playing in the, their, their great events, you know, that they have all the work like the PCA and stuff. It sort of, does that help with your motivation to sort of learn and, and, and you know, do well in these tournaments? Oh, it definitely helps. I mean, I, I really appreciate the relationship I have with Poker Stars. It's been great for what ten years now, and uh, look mm-hmm. forward to you know continue. And it, they enable me to do a lot of things, and uh, I'm very grateful for that. Mhm. Mhm. So, um, when you look at Poker Stars now and you see the size of it, you know, can you even believe it yourself? How big Poker's? Obviously, in America just now, you know, there's the effective blackout and everyone's hopeful that you know that's going to change um if not you know towards the end of this year perhaps next year after the elections and stuff um what what do you sort of think about you know that situation with online poker in america well you know i think it's going to come back i think it has to i think there's too much money for the government to be made for it not to come back so you know it'll take time though i mean it's an election year so that's not going to uh to help but 
Um, at the end of the day, I think everything will come back to – it'll be different than what it was, but it'll be um, – we'll have online poker again. I don't know exactly when, but it'll come back. So, um, yeah, Chris, it's uh, one of these things when something, sometimes get people on the oneouter.com podcast, um, a, a sort of like story breaks that sometimes, you know, is sort of like outside of, you know, poker. When I had uh, Barry Greenstein on, it was all the Phil Ivey, uh, Phil Tilt controversy and Barry sort of threes to pence in there. Um, I was reading just the other day um, something on poker news about um, some sort of two plus two thread uh, where your name was involved and someone had dropped your name and stuff like that. So maybe the best thing to do is just for you to sort of give us the, the cliffs and maybe, put, you know, put across your side of the story. Um, I had a little look through it and it seems that, you know, you've been transparent and you've been commended on the fact you went on and posted straight away, you know, your side of things. So if you maybe just want to, you know, give your side across. Well, it's pretty simple. A you know, week, week and a half ago, a guy posted something on my Facebook my message or messaged me and said that a old friend of mine who I haven't spoke to in probably a year, six months, something like that. It's been a while. Um, owed him $50,000 and he wrote a big long article or whatever and made some false uh, uh, accusations with no proof and uh, say he's going to post this whole thing. I said, you know, well, why would you post anything about me? I have no idea who you are. Um, this has nothing to do with me. Why would you even post this stuff? And uh, he basically went on to say that he'll settle for $10,000 and he won't post it. So it sort of sounded like a blackmail attempt to me, but whatever. Um, I decided that I would go ahead and post it because I'm not going to pay a guy $10,000 I don't owe the money to. And, hmm. you know, I didn't want the stuff getting out there that wasn't true, but it was going to go out there anyways. Um, I had nothing to hide, so I just felt like, you know, it was the right thing to do. Just go ahead and post it. And uh, as it went on, the guy kept attacking me, which I still have no idea why he felt like he kept attacking me. Um, the only thing that made any sense to me was if he just went on and put Dave Whitus owes me $50,000, no one in the no one would pay attention. But he attached my name to it to give it some legs and get some notoriety, and then he made up a false story um, or something he supposedly heard over a phone call um, with zero proof and just added it to the story to, to really make it go. And people mm -hmm. were focused on that made-up story more than anything else and then focused on, you know, people went to the link because it had my name on it and then the story involved in it made people stick around. So the, the thread lasted for a while and, you know, a lot longer than it would have if it was just, you know, some guy owes him money. But at the end of the day, yeah. it, it worked. I mean, my uh, old friend finally contacted me and I hooked them both up and I guess they're working through it now. Um, so at the end of the day, uh, however sleazy it was and really crappy that the guy did that, um, I guess it worked. So, you know, whatever, whatever works. Um, as far as my involvement in it, you know, I didn't know the guy any money. I didn't even know the guy. Uh, it came out later that I guess I met him one time in real life during an appearance. Uh, don't mm -hmm. even really remember meeting him, obviously, but um, whatever. Uh, I don't have any hard feelings. I mean, people are going to say things. I, I know the truth. I remember talking to Oral Hershiser on the final table. I was trying to get into the studio booth with him. So um, it was a good tournament. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, unfortunately, Things happen like that to where your name gets used. That's sort of the problem with being sort of well-known is your name gets thrown out there uh, when sometimes you don't want it to. Yeah. I was, You know, I was just reading through it. I mean, obviously a lot of people commended you on the fact, you know, being transparent and 
coming out and you know posting it and saying you know this is what it is and obviously today you know you're saying that because yeah I read that um the other guy like um McNeil was you know saying some posters believe you know he's trying to blackmail you as you say you know a big thing and then oh if you give me ten thousand dollars you know I won't post it I mean basically that is by definition blackmail and he'd, he'd alleged that um your friend you know this Dave Whitus had played on your account during a 2008 uh, W Cup event, and that obviously upset you, and you know you you know said that's completely false. Yeah, I mean, of course it's upsetting because it's you know it's a pretty um, big allegation, and yeah, you know, the guy makes the allegation with zero proof. I mean, if he had any proof, or if he, this really happened, I mean, I would imagine he would bring this up three years ago when he was trying to, or four, whenever it was, four years ago when he's trying to say yeah. it happened. So. Um, for him just to come out four years later and just make some random phone call up that supposedly happened and then just start posting it publicly. It was, you know, it was definitely a little bit frustrating just because I knew I was going to have to go onto the forums and defend myself. Um, the good thing is, is, you know, I know what happened and it was easy to defend. It was easy. You know, it would have been a lot harder to defend, I guess, if he would have posted it first, but I knew if I just went on there and just dispelled it and, you know, got it out there because, you know, it's not true. So I could care less if it was posted um, from that standpoint, so I just went ahead and posted it. You know, it wasn't really yeah. a whole lot to to say about it. Yeah, no, I think it's commendable, especially today with everything you know going on in poker, for you know a big name like yourself to come out um, and you know not just say nothing and you know whatever, let people the rumor mill. You came out, you made a statement, and you've been transparent and you know everything. So we we hope that situation sort of yeah you know get sorted out and thank thanks for you know clearing that up sort of thing today it was just because it was current and it was in the news you know thought we thought we'd have to ask you so um you know but back to the main thing and poker and that and i usually like to sort of end on a you know a nice sort of lighter question and with the world series coming up i've booked my uh flights to go out there in june july and sure lots of other people are starting to think about doing the same what would be your sort of advice on sort of guys going out there for the first time and tackling a you know, a WSOP event, whether it's the main or whether one of the smaller side events, um, what's your sort of sort of top tips for just handling it? Well, pace yourself is the biggest thing. You know, you're out in Vegas. Vegas is a very tough town. It can swallow you up. It's so much to do, so much uh, going on that you can overwhelm yourself and uh, make sure you get sleep, do the things you did to be successful playing poker. Don't go out and start going to clubs every night and get crazy and just do you know things that you normally wouldn't do. I mean, you're there to work, you're there to make money, you're there to play poker, so focus on that. Um, I would get a place that's either off the strip or away from the Rio um, and get away from the poker. You know, you need days away, you need time to take a break, you need uh, downtime, and you need to be away from the parties. So, I mean, you know, you definitely want to go out and have fun and, you know, make time for that. But the nights that you have fun, just plan the next day not to play a poker tournament. Uh, you got to really balance yourself because, you know, it's a long grind and you can wear yourself out quickly. And, you know, that's that's the biggest trap fall of the World Series. Yeah. And what about guys that maybe are lucky or fortunate enough to, to get a deep run in one of these events um, and they sort of start to maybe, you know, feel a little bit overwhelmed by it or, you know, they sort of start finding them, they're changing their game and stuff because of the situation. What would be your advice on sort of dealing with that moment? Well, everybody's going to react differently. It's tough to even, you know, people are going to handle stress and handle pressure differently. And 
and just try to remember how you got there. You know, you you got into the tournament to get this far. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Just keep doing it. You know, don't think about how much you're playing for. Just play your hand one hand at a time and be patient. Yeah. I think that's that's great advice for everyone. And um, I want to thank you for your time today, Chris. And I want to thank uh, Young Will for being so well behaved and quiet. <laughs> yeah, he's actually waking up now, so I got to go wake him up. Nice. Well, he's got perfect timing. Yes, th that's great. Right. Well, thanks for your time today, Chris. And we'll love to have you back on sometime. Yep. Take care, Barry. Appreciate it. Cheers. As a OneOuter.com podcast listener, you can get yourself a massive seventy dollars discount from our sponsors, PokerXFactor.com. They offer the best in poker training with lots of new videos each week from some of the top names in online poker. Just use coupon code OneOuter70. That's O-N-E. O-U-T-E-R-7-0.